Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. Today I'm here with Dr. Manisha Desai, who is Professor of Medicine and of Biomedical Data Science at Stanford University, where she is also founder and director of the Quantitative Sciences Unit. She is interested in the application of biostatistical methods to all areas of medicine, including oncology, nephrology, and endocrinology. She works on methods for the analysis of epidemiologic studies, clinical trials, and studies with missing observations. Manisha, it's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'd love to start by talking about your training, which started off in math and then evolved through biostatistics to have wide-ranging medical applications. What drew you to applying your theoretical background to the clinic and specifically to analyzing clinical trial and real-world data? It's interesting because I actually started off when I was young Um, you know, like elementary school age, I was actually really interested in medicine and I was interested in disease and in studying disease. That was just what I was most curious about. And then, and then when I was in high school, my aunt died of ovarian cancer and I was, I was devastated. And I, you know, I wanted to be involved in some way in, in solving disease, but I had a lot of competing interests, I think, when I went to college. So I was, I loved playing music. I played the flute quite seriously. And I, I had just discovered that I was good at math. Um, so I didn't really know that until college and that I enjoyed doing math. And then I was also interested in like Spanish literature. So I had a lot of different in- interests. And mostly I thought about when I first started college, you know, should I study music or should I do math? And I, I started juggling between um, the two. So that biology, the biology and medicine part was sort of pushed aside um, at that time. And then I, you know, I graduated with my bachelor's in math and my master's in stat. And then after, after that, I went and I worked at the VA in Bedford, Massachusetts. And I worked on a study called the Veterans Health Study and got exposed to how statistics could be applied to study disease and biology and epidemiology. And I was discussing with one of my professors, about the study. And he said, you know, why don't you go and, and, and get your PhD in biostatistics? And I said, what's biostatistics? I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> so that was the first time I heard that term. Um, and he said, you know, this is, it's, it's great. It's basically, you know, the, the field of applied statistics and you apply statistics to learn about biology and disease. And I thought that's, that's really perfect. And, and it brought back that, that passion I had for, for sudden disease that I had sort of been ignoring since, since I last thought about it, maybe back in, in elementary and middle, middle school. So, so I, I started looking into that and that was really what started me on that, that path to sort of thinking about those those two, um, I guess, the, the merging of those two disciplines. Right. So it sounds like the experiences you had were able to further maybe clarify and even help you identify the intersection of some of these traditionally disparate interests. How would you say that some of these opportunities that you had actually helped you build an intuition for which tools maybe in the biostatistics world map to which problems in medicine? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of that comes with experience. I think, you know, when I was first presented with problems, like when I first worked on the the veterans health study, I thought, um, okay, so I've learned about these, about these um, techniques in my, in my classes. I'm now faced with these data and I should apply, you know, a T-test and it's appropriate now to apply um, a Wilcoxon test. And so I was sort of pulling things off the shelf to apply to these, to these problems, but not really thinking so much about the context. And it was really in that sort of team setting where I would go and I would present the results to an investigator who said, you know, please figure out if A if A is related to B. And I would say, okay, well, here's the test I ran on whether A is related to B. And then watching the way the investigator sort of thought about the problem, tried to internalize it, tried to sort of interpret, um, and the way they brought in the scientific biological context helped me to realize how you're really supposed to bridge those together and how one should really be thinking more about study design and um, and, the, and the context of the problem and um, the data generation. And so I think it, it was really helpful to be in the real world working on real problems as opposed to a classroom setting um, to really appreciate how to bring those, those, two, um, those two fields together and how to best apply that skill set that, that that um, I learned in in, uh, undergrad and graduate school. Definitely. I know you and I have talked in the past about being able to not only pull off the shelf, as you mentioned, the appropriate statistical test, but to really ground that in the context of the question you're asking and how it fits in the broader landscape of everything that is available. Exactly. And now, you know, I think the way I approach problems is just like, forget about the statistics, forget about thinking about like, what tool am I going to use? And hmm, what tool should I use? And really, really get involved in the conversation, really get involved in the science. What are we trying to learn? Why are we trying to learn it? Um, To really understand the motivation and then to understand, okay, what data are generated to answer that question, but really first, just really understanding the context and not worrying so much about you know, what mathematical tools can be applied later. All of that comes sort of downstream. And, but if one can sort of understand better about like, okay, what data are going to be collected? When are they going to be collected? What are we going to learn? Do we need to do it this way? Is there another way to do it? Um, Is so much more important um, than thinking about, you know, the statistical test that needs to be applied. That will come, that will come later. But um, it's really important to meet the other scientists halfway and just really get engaged in that scientific discussion initially. Absolutely. So let's talk about data. You work with clinical and epidemiological data, which both imply a longitudinal nature or data that's been collected over time. What are some of the kinds of questions that these data are amenable to helping answer? I think there's so many different types of questions that we can try to answer. And, um, you know, many of these many of these questions are are causal questions. Does, um, you know, exposure to um, this pollutant or uh, does taking this drug um, put me at greater risk of such and such disease? So we're often trying to answer causal types of questions. We're, we're trying to make um, draw causal inference uh, between X and Y. And so many of the studies, the way we've designed them, 
particularly if they are observational and longitudinal and prospective, we're still limited in our in our ability to make that causal link. Um, so, you know, we've got the best tools we have to, to do that is through like a randomized clinical trial. Um, but most of the data sources that we have at our hand, and often because, you know, ex- exposing someone to a certain pollutant or, or something like this in the context of a randomized clinical trial is not necessarily feasible or ethical. So we're often stuck with um, imperfect data and imperfect natural experiments. And we're trying to make these these causal links. And so we have to get really creative about how to think about how to think about the data, how to think about designing the study um, so that we can make the interpretation that we want to make. And sometimes we're just limited in the in the types of interpretations that that we can make. Right. Causal inference is an area that I think there is growing interest in and a growing identification of the importance of this as one of the foundational statistical paradigms is correlation is not causation. But at some point, our goal is to really make that jump to causality. And it sounds like the kinds of data that you work with are best poised as we stand right now to help with that. Are there certain state-of-the-art statistical methods that are typically used to capitalize on time course data? Yeah. And you know, I think a lot of the work, um, I really like the work by Miguel Hernan, um, who's over at Harvard, and he's devoted much of his career to developing and explaining these types of causal inference tools. And there are wonderful tools like marginal structural models with inverse probability of treatment weighting techniques that can be utilized. And um, of course, you know, while a lot of these techniques are theoretically sound, there's always interesting things that come up when you go to apply them in practice. Right. And so that's where I, I feel like that's where it gets it gets really interesting. And of course, the devil is in the details, right? Because there's they, they do rely on some strong assumptions about about the data. But the, yeah, these are these are wonderful methods that I think um, can be used for particularly when you have time bearing confounders, and you're trying to draw causal inference, which can be a really tricky problem. I'd love to dissect the two components that you just mentioned. The first being, let's take an example like marginal structural models and talk about what is the underlying principle behind that. Yeah. So I think what what, what one is doing when one's using, um, you know, like weighting techniques is one's really trying to almost create a randomized clinical trial from an observational setting where you've got an individual who um, maybe has the exposure of interest and a certain history, and you want to create a counterfactual, someone who does not ex- is, has not been exposed, um, but who has that um, who has that same history, and so it's 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 basically creating these sort of counterfactuals from the data and weighting them appropriately so that you can draw inference. It's a pretty cool trick and um, and 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 quite effective. Got it. Got it. And then the second piece that you mentioned was that there are considerations that need to be made and certain assumptions that are are made when trying to infer causality. Yeah. What are a couple examples of these? Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest one is that we can use the data to estimate such weights. So that's, that's one assumption. So do we have the data that, that will tell us how to weight, how to weight people appropriately? Do we have all of the the confounders, all of all of the variables that are related to both um, the outcome and the exposure that we should be 
um, that we should be incorporating when estimating the weight. So that's a big assumption that you have these these measured data, and that's and the validity of your estimator relies on that that underlying assumption. Yeah. So your predictions, in a sense, are only as good as the underlying data will allow. Exactly. Exactly. So I'd love to hear about how you've applied some of this thinking to some of your work. And this could be either in some of your work predicting associations between risk for cardiovascular disease and other diseases, or even the study that you co-led with Apple to detect atrial fibrillation from wearable technology. Yeah, I can talk about I can talk about a couple of those. So the cardiovascular study where we were looking at which antiretroviral drugs might be uh, associated with cardiovascular disease was a really tricky one. So there had been a few studies that had come out some years ago saying that a back of ear and, and maybe some other antiretrovirals were causing cardiovascular disease. And so we set out to replicate those findings. And we used a registry, um, an HIV registry, um, so this is, you know, these are, this is among HIV patients who are who are taking uh, anti- antivirals and combinations of antivirals, um, and so we use a registry um, at the VA for this purpose. But it, it was a registry that wasn't really set up for uh, necessarily doing research. I mean, we were getting data from like um, from billing, from pharmacy. Um, from labs and sort of putting it all together, trying to create a longitudinal um, cohort and a longitudinal database to see, you know, if you were exposed, did you have increased risk of cardiovascular disease? And so, as you can imagine, there were so many things that were confounded, particularly um, that, that were confound, there was confounding by indication, for example. So, you know, it could be that you went on a drug like a back of your um, or maybe you went on another drug, um, like, you know, maybe you went on, you were on didanazine and maybe um, as you were on didanazine, uh, perhaps your, um, your lipids began to, um, to, to increase in a way that looked really harmful. And once your provider saw that, maybe he switched you from um, didanazine to a back of ear. And then you had a cardiovascular event. And so it's really tricky to say, well, was it Abacavir? Was it didanazine? And so that history of going of going from didanazine to abacavir and um, you know needs to be taken into account. Um, and and one, one has to think about the, the very profoundly difficult issue of confounding by by indication, because again, it's not a randomized right. clinical trial. Um, and so we were faced with this really difficult problem of um, time-bearing confounders, so that even if we fit a model, um, a regression model that accounted for, for one's history, it was going to be very difficult and very problematic. The interpretation was going to be very problematic. So that was a perfect scenario where we could use some of these um, tools, and, and in particular, we use marginal structural models to help us um, gain insight into whether these drugs were um, were really associated with um, causing harm or not. So it was a really, um, a really fun study to work on and a really tricky one, too, because um, there were so many interesting issues from um, missing data, you know, people had gave different amounts of information. Um, so, you know, people might give lots of information on their lipids, and maybe those people were 
um, were sicker than those people who gave very little data. And so it was, we had really interesting issues with um, different lengths of follow-up, different lengths, different amounts of data that were provided to us per patient. And so there were just many issues that we had to deal with. On top of it, we wanted to be able to implicate a single agent like a Bacavir, but a Bacavir was was often given in combination. So, you know, for, since uh, 1995, we really had combination therapies that were given. So it was really hard to tease out um, the effect of individual agents. So there were just so many interesting issues yeah. in that in that study, uh, one of which was um, time-varying confounders. Um, but many, many other issues to, to ponder with. And it just, it just shows you how tricky it is when you're dealing with um, real world data sources. Right. Um, so, and, and that, that brings me to the Apple Heart study too, that you mentioned where um, that study was um, also a really fun study to work on um, and very different from the HIV study in that I feel like with the HIV study, we, um, we really set up these like sophisticated models and we, you know, we looked at models in many different ways and, and compared them and did sensitivity analyses. With the Apple Heart study, the analysis was so simple. So in the, in the Apple Heart study, um, we were interested in knowing whether um, this um, app that was on the Apple Watch could detect um, atrial fibrillation. Um, so you, we wanted to see first, you know, who, who got notified that there was, that there was an issue using mm-hmm. the app. And then among those who got notified, if we put like a gold standard monitor on them, would atrial fibrillation be detected? So we were really evaluating like the performance of the, of the app and looking got at it. the positive predictive value. Um, and so very simple, you know, at the end of the day, there's no model really, it was just like calculating a proportion. But I would say that, um, out of all of the studies I've worked on, that was probably the, the one that was the most data science intensive. Um, I had a really large team on that study. And the hardest part was not obviously calculating that proportion at the end of the day. It was getting to the point where we could calculate that proportion. It was putting together the data set, putting together the longitudinal data set. We, had, we were streaming in all of this, these data elements from different platforms, uh, from the watch, from the monitor, uh, clinical data, um, from the, from the, uh, um, the app itself. So, and we were doing this over time. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were following up patients over time, but none of them were coming into the clinic. And so we had to sort of link the data together and there were really interesting issues that arose like, um, there were there were um, multiple IDs um, coming in. For example, if the um, if you had like new software that was being downloaded on your on your iPhone, it it might give you the ability to re-enroll in the study. And so we'd have the the same oh, wow. the same person enrolling. And so we had to on the fly come up with um, an algorithm to uh, deduplicate um, I, 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 IDs and make sure that we could link data appropriately so that we had a nice longitudinal assessment on everyone. And so those were some of the some of the interesting challenges that we dealt with on the Apple Heart study, just putting that longitudinal structure together. Um, and I think that that study is so interesting too, because we are relying more and more on on, you know, patient-generated data. Um, 
like apps and phones and we're asking people to just, you know, get onto get onto their app and fill out their their, you know, symptomology data or um or give us heart rate data or give us exercise data. And so these data are, you know, they're they're noisily measured and um and they rely on certain patient behaviors. Uh, they also rely on uh, device behaviors. And so um, understanding that that data generation becomes really important in these in these studies. I mean, that study allowed us to enroll over 400,000 patients. So I've never wow. been part of a study that that, that was that large. Um, I never would have been able to do that in a clinical in a brick and mortar clinical trial where we had um, patients coming into the clinic and and coordinators um, scheduling them. So I, I mean, it allowed us to do great things, but. Um, with a study like that, where you've got such a high volume of patients and you're generating data and in, in kind of this virtual way, um, there's going to be so much less burden on the on the patient, much less burden on a on a clinical staff team, much greater burden on the data science team. You bring up a couple of very interesting points. One of which you alluded to a lot in the the first study, and that's just the notion of having these confounders and observational data. In my own research, I think about cells. And even when working in what we think are experimentally controlled systems, there are dozens of confounders we need to control for. I can't even imagine working with humans that are not in a randomized controlled trial, but that are just living their lives and trying to collect data from them in a systematized way that you can then go back and make conclusions from. I think the nature of noise that is is inherent to that is very high. It is. And I think you know, on the one hand, it's important to have that that noise because, you know, when we administer a drug, we're not doing it in a controlled environment, right? So when a doctor mm-hmm. prescribes you uh, medication, you may or may not fill it. You may or may not take it perfectly. And so uh, it, it's, it is important to get the data generated in its, in, its, <laughs> in its noisy and imperfect fashion. So on the one hand, that's important, but it's, it's really frustrating because we also want to learn about the drugs true of efficacy. If we did, if we could just put it into a culture, you know, how well, <laughs> how well does it work? Um, it's good to get a sense of that. So it's, it's frustrating in, in the, uh, when you're working in the real world with real humans. But at the same time, powerful, as you alluded to with the second study, and especially as technologies continue to evolve, the ease with which this data can be collected is perhaps increasing. But that might yield if I may say, it's more of like a data janitor type behavior that is required that is very time and energy intensive on the data scientist side. That's actually a piece of the puzzle that I think isn't discussed in the public sphere as much when talking about wearables, for example, and the implications that they might have. Exactly. And I think we're also excited to um, design what's what, what's being called like pragmatic trials, um, trials that make it easy for for the participant and easy to get data on the on the participant and easy to intervene, right? So we've got these we've got these apps and and um, we can uh, contact them through watch or phone and we can not only grab data from them, we can give them information so we can intervene. Um, so really powerful um, devices. And it does give itself this sort of pragmatic and, and, and flexibility um, that I don't think we, we've seen that much in the past. But yeah, it, 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 comes with, um, it comes with challenges that one needs to think about. Absolutely. And one of those being noisy, noisy data. 
Noisy data and missing data, which is is one topic that I really want to hear about. As a lot of your work in your lab has really made strides towards dealing with missing observations and data, we've talked about a couple sources in real-world data that can lead to missing data. But how have you typically thought about tackling this issue? And what kinds of approaches have been the most promising? Yeah. And so, you know, I think you know it's been such a common theme in a lot of the work I do because anytime you have a prospective study, you're going to have some loss to follow up. So that's even true in the clinical trial setting. You can put together the most wonderful uh, retention and, and engagement plans, but you're going to have some missing data, you know, sometimes getting patients to come in who are too sick to come in or maybe who are too healthy to, to care to come in. You know, it, it can be an issue, especially if the missingness is related to an, an outcome, like how, how sick or how healthy they are. Um, and then, you know, even not just the prospective studies, but the, um, the retrospective studies or the, the studies where we rely on, uh, for example, electronic health records that are not necessarily meant for research. They have missing data, even though the data are not even recorded necessarily as missing. Um, and, you know, I've relied on, on registry data that, that are missing key variables, like in that, that HIV study. Um, you know, where we would have lots of missing, missing labs because it, it, because it's not a randomized control trial where patients are scheduled to come in at three months, six months, et cetera. Um, so some patients again, contribute lots of values, some contribute very few. And, um, and so one always has to think about, okay, what, if we analyze the data in, in this way, what are we assuming about the missing data? For example, if you only include, um, if you only include patients who give you every data point, um, who who give you like a full trajectory of data, and you and you exclude those who don't give you um, enough data, let's say, um, you know what are what's the assumption that you're that you're making when you analyze the data? Well, you know you're making an assumption that the people who um, that who you included in your analysis are just like the people that you excluded from your analysis. And so you have to think about what the implications are going to be if you go forward with an assumption like that. Um, you know, another approach might be to say, okay, well, for the people who come in, but they don't give me a lot of data, maybe I'll just assume that, um, you know, let's say I was looking at their cholesterol values. Maybe I'll just assume that um, things are, are status quo for them. They didn't come in and I'm going to assume that their cholesterol values stayed stable. Um, is that is that a reasonable assumption? And you know there can be that's a really strong assumption to assume that if you're not seeing someone, things are status quo. That can either bias your estimate of interest to the null, or it can make it look uh, make it go the other way. It can go in either direction. So those are really strong assumptions. And um, I found that really flexible. Um, solutions to this um, are around multiple imputation types approaches, which are also, you know, limited to a certain set of assumptions. I mean, anything you do uh, with regard to missing data, whether you exclude patients who have at least one missing value or you include patients who give you even partial information um, versus if you impute some information for that patient, mm -hmm. those are all making, making various assumptions. And I think um, what I found to be really helpful is to really think hard about what's the plausible set of assumptions 
and um, somehow averaging over that plausible set of assumptions. And I like doing that through imputation methods because they're nice and they're um, flexible and they're easy to easy to implement. And I always suggest to people to do sensitivity analyses too, like take mm -hmm. the most extreme example um, or most extreme examples on, on either end. And um, how, how robust are your findings to that? If you don't see much movement, then um, you might be convinced that um, that you know the answer the answer that you're that you're given is um, is is really not going to be influenced too much by the missing data, but it's good to see too how much movement you get in your answer and your conclusions by um, how much your results vary when you vary those assumptions about missingness. Mm -hmm. So there's no bias involved as you start to look through it. Exactly. To just anticipate beforehand. So are we going to be missing data? And what do you anticipate the patterns going to look like? Um, like, is it going to be the sick people who don't give us the data? Or is it a mixture of the, the sickest and the healthiest? Who's not going to be um, coming in to give us to give us data? And, and why? Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that it may be impossible to get rid of assumptions, but there might be some assumptions that are more appropriate given who is and who isn't in the data. Exactly. So I want to step back a little and get your perspective on how the field has evolved during your time in it, and also hear your thoughts on what areas of any within the field do you think are going to be most effective for the application of data-driven approaches, broadly speaking? Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting to watch the field evolve and to see like where interests get shifted to. Um, and how they, they shift to different aspects like, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, it was, you know, big data. And then I was hearing a lot about deep learning. Now we hear a lot about AI and, um, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I think these are, these are fads that, um, come and go where people think, okay, this tool is going to save the world or this type of data, um, is so important. It's going to, it's going to solve everything and give us great insight, um, and often there is something new to learn, and that's that's wonderful because we should all keep learning. Um, but it's typically not the case where that methodology or that type of data is 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 saving the world. Um, there's you know there are there are you know again these are sort of like um, passing passing fads that I think we we need to um, pay some attention to, but but really stick to more. Uh, fundamental principles, and I and I think that the underlying fundamental principles have remained, and and those, you know, to me, um, it's really key to think always about study design. How how was the design studied? Because that is is going to influence and have implications downstream implications on how we can conclude um, at the end of the day, how we can interpret. So all of these assumptions need to be considered when drawing inference and interpreting the data. Data needs to be interpreted really carefully. One has to think carefully about how to present and quantify uncertainty around findings, given how um, how you estimated um, your, your estimate of interest and given the study design and given the underlying assumptions and given the data generation and the, and the integrity of the data. And so there isn't going to be sort of one tool that's going to like be a magic bullet. Um, so I think it's really important to go back to to those fundamentals. You know, I think I was given those those fundamental principles, and I think we we, we all were in in graduate school. The, and and it's important to go to go back to those 
to those fundamentals and rely on that that strong theoretical foundation when you're when you're working on things in practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Manisha, it's been fantastic having you here to talk with me today. Thank you again. Again, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.